This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began our Zoomer Squad discussion on Monday with Sabrina Maddow's rebuttal piece in the National Post against the boomer generation. This time for the $500 checks that are being received by Canadians 75 and older from the Trudeau Liberals, a promise kept from the 2019 election. Maddow also quotes our own David Kravitz for running defense for boomers as she continues to tout the challenges faced by younger generations, which she blames boomers for in an ageist rant. David Kravitz is chief marketing officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media. He's also one of our Zoomer Squad members and offered his response on Fight Back. I think this is a really good example of how a skilled writer uh, can completely mislead by omission, by what she leaves out. Uh, she's certainly entitled to attack the $500 one-time payment. It's a policy issue. It's up for grabs. Is it too much? Is it not enough? But she jumps to saying that Canadian seniors uh, aren't struggling, by and large, that uh, only a small minority uh, need the money, which is fair enough. It's, it's, that's the argument you want to take. But she says that the reason that the other seniors are doing so well is not because they worked hard all their lives, but because they lucked into being born at the right time and benefit from economic growth. And then they pulled the, they, they pulled the ladder of what the wealth ladder up behind them as if we all got together in a hotel room one day and said, I know what we'll do. Let's make sure nobody else can, can make money. Then she comes to attack me by correctly quoting me and saying that the, uh, Boomer generation will leave behind this massive wealth transfer to millennials, true enough. But she leaves out the fact that I also commented on how much income tax we are now paying, more than Gen X and millennials combined. And also that I pointed out that 60% of uh, boomers are providing financial assistance to adult children. So I made a number of points about how the boomers are paying their fair share are contributing, are assisting millennials. She leaves all that out, and she implies that the only argument I made was, oh, well, shut up, at least you're going to inherit a lot of money. So she uses um, she uses your comments about how much boomers are paying uh, to in income tax, about the wealth that they're sharing with their children and grandchildren, the wealth that they're leaving behind. She uses that for ammunition that there is no means test for this five hundred dollar well, check. She, well, she leaves out the first two points altogether. She reduced my argument. She said. Kravitz acknowledges that thanks to Boomer's traditional work ethic has never meant less. I, mean, I said no such thing. I said that we are paying for this. We are paying for that. Whether the $500 should be means tested or not, or and it's clawed back by taxes or not, is, in my opinion, a uh, legitimate and not necessarily ageist argument. Go make the argument, Sabrina. Go bring the facts and figures as to why this isn't fair. 
But then she springboards from that into this anti-age rant again, in which we are portrayed as selfish and greedy and undeserving of anything. And that's what I object to. I don't object to a, a reasoned debate about, you know, policy ins and outs, but this was ridiculous. And David, it's just very misleading. What percentage, in terms of how many Canadians 75 plus, would really benefit from this $500 check? Well, she, she, she does correctly point out that the percentage of seniors that are living in poverty however that's defined, has been going down steadily. Canada does have a good record, thank God we do, of having the majority of seniors not in poverty. Um, so, you know, that's accurate as far as it goes. Now, whether that calls for this one-time payment, whether it's popular, whether it's buying votes, whether it's uh, some seniors have said that they don't need it and and, and uh, others said that they wish they had more. And if it was means tested, maybe more money could have been given to poor, more poorer people. So that's all in the field of legitimate policy debate. But it's the springing, springboarding from that into this sweeping generalization, which quickly becomes the kind of ageism that is uh, all too common nowadays, I'm afraid. David Kravitz is Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. She's on vacation, but Fight Back host Libby Snymer joined me on Monday to recount her experience Sunday at Toronto's Pearson Airport, where she left on a flight to Vancouver, her first flight since before the pandemic. I asked Libby, would it be fair to say it was chaotic? It was chaotic, and I think it was really unsafe. I had heard kind of rumblings about this, but it was a mob scene. There were huge numbers of people there. There was no distancing, and even going through security was completely chaotic. Uh, There wasn't a sense that uh, the people who were running it really kind of knew what they were doing. So uh, it was, I would say it was harrowing. So uh, first we went through security and again, trying to keep distance from people uh, was virtually impossible because if I would stand back from the person in front of me, then the person in back wouldn't. Uh, And it was very, there wasn't really anywhere for them to go. It was very, very crowded. Uh, When we went through security, for some reason, my husband's computer was flagged, uh, which is fine, except nobody seemed to know where it was for 25 minutes where they were supposedly checking it. Hmm. So that, and, and even for, for that time, you know, I was looking around trying to find a place to stand where I wouldn't be on top of other people, and it was difficult. And on the plane, it was even worse. Um, you know, I don't know, does this surprise you? You know what? It's funny because or at the same time I was picking as the same time you were leaving, I was picking Myron up at the airport. He went to Atlanta for a few days. He had the exact same experience last Wednesday where he was literally lined up for three hours before he got to the gate. Same thing. No social distancing. Um, he one woman passed out, he said, because it was so hot. Um, the But he, the only thing he said that was positive is that everybody was aware wearing a mask, but that was it. Oh, and everybody was wearing a mask, 
but not necessarily properly. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, here above and beyond my own experience, I'm thinking, you know, we, we do hear numbers of people who come into the country with COVID because international travelers, whether they're, they have to be vaccinated, but, but they, they also have to take a test when they get home. So people know, but there's no requirement for a domestic flight. Right. And, and so if you are trying to tell me that there is no COVID passed on flights, I do not believe you. So let me tell you about being on the plane. When I booked the flight, it was on a big plane, and it was uh, probably a month and a half ago, and what I had heard was that there weren't that many people traveling, and as you know, Doug traveled at the beginning of July, and it was fine. But uh, they changed the equipment on the flight so that it was, it was probably oversold. There were probably people who didn't make it on. And they put it in a smaller plane on a Max 8. And uh, it was Sardine Can City. Wow. I mean, it, it was really unsafe. So now that I you've mean, been now that you've been through this experience and ahead of it, obviously, you thought you thought that it would be better than it was. What would be your advice or guidance uh, to people who might be thinking on getting on a flight either domestically or internationally? Well, internationally might be better because people have requirements to be vaccinated and you have to show a, a, a negative test taken before you get on the plane. And depending on where you land, well, certainly when you come home, you have to take another test uh, after you get off the plane. Now, the, the, the government has said that they will require passengers to be vaccinated. I forget when that is. It's October, I think. I can tell you I'm not taking another trip before then. Certainly not. And probably not, you know, what, while we go through this fourth wave, which everybody says or the doctors say is going to be bad, but, but nobody seems to be, you know, doing anything about right. it. Fight back host Libby Snymer on the line from Vancouver. Libby's comments were heard by Tori Gass of the Greater Toronto Airports Authority, who emailed us to acknowledge that return to travel has not been smooth for all passengers. She says they've been working closely with government agencies and airline partners to help minimize the impacts to passengers and employees where possible. Tori Gass also writes that the government of Canada recognizes that in some areas of the airport, physical distancing of two meters may not be possible. So in these areas, there is a layered approach with multiple protective measures in place, including mask wearing, hand hygiene, respiratory etiquette and ventilation systems. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, it's a tight race at the top as the federal election campaign continues. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. When our Tuesday strategy panelists joined me this week, the federal election polls suggested Justin Trudeau's liberals were holding around 32 or 33 percent voters' support, with the Aaron O'Toole Conservatives in the high 20s or low 30s and the Jugmeet Singh New Democrats in the low 20s. 
In addition, both Jagmeet Singh and Aaron O'Toole are gaining in popularity among voters to the detriment of support for Justin Trudeau. Offering their takes to that point in the campaign, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal finance minister. I asked Charles first, is it fair to say Justin Trudeau is not getting it right? Well, nothing happened much in his favor in that first week. Um, but at the same time, I don't see a lot of people angry necessarily. They're disappointed is how I see it. You know, there's a malaise out there. It's the, it's the month of August. And I think for Justin Trudeau, he kind of wants this thing to be low-key as much as possible, given that he's on top by the polls. But I think people are just kind of fed up. There's not a lot of interest on their part. I don't know if the ballot question is really determined as of yet. I mean, his ballot question isn't necessarily what people want to hear. Because they don't want to go to the they don't want to go to the polls. Right. So, I think he's just banking on the, the economy and full employment as it stands now. They don't want to deal with some of the other factors that are upon us, which is the new variant, the, the stage four, the increase in inflation. Um, but I I get a sense from those that I speak to that it's not faring as well as he would like, because uh, people are kind of saying, "I'm done with this. I don't know if I want to." I don't know who I want. That's the problem. And mm-hmm. I think that's what uh, Justin Trudeau is looking at as well. None of one else is faring necessarily as well, although they are increasing. Certainly Jagmeet is, but will it be enough? I don't think so. So I, I think the less said, the better at this point for, for, <laughs> for Justin Trudeau. Karen, what do you see as the dynamic as we begin week two? Well, you know, I think that um, Aaron O'Toole has benefited from low expectations going into the campaign, and he's exceeding them. And so I think, you know, he is, he's doing, um, you know, and John, you know, I'm going to steal your line, campaigns matter, they do matter. And he's getting a chance to introduce himself to Canadians, and he's not the scary beast that um, is often being portrayed as, by, you know, as a conservative leader. He's, you know, he's a, everyone agrees, like, Aaron O'Toole is a good guy. And he's, he's running a, a good campaign. And so, you know, I, I think, like Charles, you know, I think everyone is just kind of watching and waiting. I think after Labor Day, things will really crystallize. And um, but it certainly, it has been the fact that there isn't a defining ballot question has been working in favor of the opposition parties. It is only a five-week campaign. We're one week in, so there is a long way to go. John, what is your sense of what's happening right now? Yeah, my sense, Jane, is that, in, you know, with elections, there's two key things. And, and, and as, I, as I mentioned, as Karen alluded to, campaigns do matter. And the two things that I would say is never underestimate or take for granted the will of the electorate. You know, whether or not it's a provincial campaign, a municipal campaign or a federal campaign, never think you have a read on what the electric is, think- the electric is-, electric is thinking. Mm-hmm. One, two, never underestimate your opponent. <clears throat> and I think Justin Trudeau has done both. I think he underestimated Aaron O'Toole's um, uh, potential for growth, because I think he saw over the last year that, that Aaron's been leader, that he wasn't getting traction and the media weren't paying attention to him. His, his numbers were, were low. And of course, during the pandemic, as we've always talked about, when you're an opposition leader, you don't get that, that attention. You don't get that necessary, the public eye that you would normally get in, in other things. So that's one thing I think that they underestimated was Aaron to his ability to be able to campaign as he did so well in the first week. And the second thing was, with respect to going to an election in the middle of a pandemic, I think that, that the Trudeau team didn't expect the, the public 
to uh, to really sort of pay attention. He thought a, sh- a summer short election might just kind of sneak through. But what we saw in Nova Scotia, I think, scared them. And that is, you know, liberal, the incumbent liberal premier there who ran in an election with 20 points ahead, who lost miserably uh, to the conservatives, I think put a lot of fear in, in, in the Justin Trudeau. So I think, Jane, it was a bad week for the liberals because when you are the incumbent and you're calling the election, you should have the ballot question or define why you want to go to an election, especially when you're causing the election. And I think he failed that in the first week. And that's a problem because it's hard now uh, when you get to the second week and third week to try to define why you're going to election if it hasn't been done successfully in the first week. And that's a problem because even the media now, uh, quite frankly, ask him almost every press conference, why are we in this election? And that's a problem for him down the road. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Should there be a province-wide policy on COVID-19 vaccinations for sporting events and entertainment venues, as well as workplaces? It would certainly simplify the process. Right now, it seems everyone is coming up with their own policy of what they will require for entrance, as well as in individual workplaces. I was joined on Tuesday by John Karastamatis of Mervish to talk about what will be required to watch a stage production when Mervish theaters in Toronto fully reopen. If you are not eligible to receive a vaccine for medical reasons or for a deep-seated faith reason, uh, you can uh, come in, but you have to show a, a, a negative COVID test. Uh, which has to be, you know, taken between 72 and 48 hours before uh, coming to the theater um, so that we know that everybody's on the same, in the same group. Everyone in the theater needs to be COVID free. Uh, uh, so and- nobody, nobody will be turned away as long as they have that 72 hour COVID test? Correct. Okay, so you you could be philosophically against uh, vaccines or you could be an anti-vaxxer as long as you have that 72-hour negative test. Correct. Okay, so that is basically, that seems to be what is being applied to other venues, including the Blue Jays, the Toronto Argos, TFC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, How did you come to the policy and would you have preferred guidance from the province or did you receive guidance from the province? We would have preferred uh, guidance from the, of the province, and the province does have guidance. What they don't have is a mandate. Uh, you know, a couple uh, midweek last week, they did issue a press release saying if if, if businesses and organizations need a vaccine passport, uh, there are there are similar things that exist right now. Everyone who, who everyone in Ontario who who is vaccinated does receive an email Mm -hmm. and receives a paper copy showing that. So that's one form. The province also said that the federal government is midway into creating a travel vaccination passport, which can be used as a vaccination passport in Canada too. And that should be ready by the end of September. And the federal government is working on that with each of the provinces. Uh, And uh, all of us will, all of us who have been vaccinated uh, can request one 
um, and uh, it will it will come to us digitally or in paper or both. Um, so again, uh, because this is there isn't anything yet that's really concrete that's why we ch- we chose to open in december and mm-hmm. not sooner based on what you're saying uh if we do get these federal vaccine passports sooner rather than later may- perhaps there's no need for an ontario vaccine certificate on top of that i you know i i personally i think it should the federal government should be responsible for the for the vaccine passports like they are responsible for regular passports mm-hmm. And and each and each of the provinces needs to work with the federal government. In other in other words, give them access to their data, uh, so that they they have all the correct information. But you know, we are a country, right? It doesn't make sense for one province to have a vaccine passport and another one not to have it, since the borders between the provinces are, are don't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know. Uh, I think it. I, I really do think it should be a federal uh, a project uh, with provincial uh, involvement well, because each prov- each each Ministry of Health in each province has that medical information that's needed. John Karis-Dematis, Director of Sales and Marketing at Mervish Productions. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Daryl in Toronto phoned to say he's voting liberal and does not take issue with Justin Trudeau's decision to call an election at this time. The Conservatives' independent polling and the uh, NDP's independent polling told them that they could make great gains, you know, from the last over the last few months. That they could make great gains now by not supporting the government anymore. What do you think they would have done? Would they have sat there and said, "Well, you know, it's not a great time for an election," or would they have pulled their support? So I don't see how you can blame a minority government for when the polling shows it trying to become a majority government. It just it's the kind of nature of the beast of our politics. Pat in Toronto would like to see a re-elected minority government. I think we should stick with a minority government. I mean, it keeps them on their toes. We get good ideas coming out. I think if we give them a majority, I mean, it just doesn't work as well as far as good debate, good ideas, and proving things in the right way. So, uh, yeah, and I, I guess I have a little bit of a concern that the man, Mr. Trudeau, who I refer to as the man with the good hair, uh, has a little <laughs> bit of a sub- superiority complex in that his father was the pre- previous prime minister, or was a prime minister, way back when, when I was first voting. Rachel in Brampton called to say she plans to vote Liberal in the September 20th election. I'm still going to vote Liberal. I mean, I don't see any difference between conservative uh, and liberal that much anyway. And uh, I, by voting conservative, you know, they're not going to do major changes for me, my son's special needs. 
So I don't see them talking about what they can do. Uh, I like Justin Singh, but I don't think he's going to win. But all these, you know, Trudeau sending tweets, that means nothing to me. I mean, it's not going to change my life. Mm-hmm. And it's all politics game that they're playing. But my, my point is I'm sticking to the level. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Sita in Mississauga who phoned about the crisis in Afghanistan. Canada and U.S. went to find bin Laden. We know eventually they will leave, but they overstayed 20 years. This made the Afghan people weaker by depending on them as a safety net. Pulling out the troop without a plan was a horrible and sad mistake by these two countries. They should have started the process to relocate interpreters, etc., and families. A year ago, when Trump made that decision, plus the army told those in charge what would happen to those who left behind. So, but most of the blame I will give to the country, Afghanistan itself. Why they don't have a braver president and an army to protect its, its, its citizens? Um, this country would not at fall like overnight into these uh, in it, the arms of the um, Taliban. But anyway, the sacrifice and the loss of hard, lives and the hard work our soldiers did did not go wasted. The Afghani people accepted and wanted changes. Children went to school. Women gained their strength and voice. And Canada should not stop helping. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.